0: Today, I thought we'd talk about exhaustion.
1: For years, I had boundless energy. I could work all day, go to the gym, cook up something nice for dinner, and then go out dancing all night with my girlfriends and say yes to everything. And I felt wonderful and carefree. I mean, this was up through my 30s and into my 40th year. And I never felt tired. Even on two hours of sleep, I felt like I had an extra extra sunshine in my soul. And now I feel exhausted all the time, just burnt and barely making it each day. I've been working a lot of hours. That could explain part of it, you know, working 60 to 70 hours a week. I love my job. It's a really enjoyable job. I teach college and I love my students. And I, you know, but I work a lot of hours. It's my first semester full time. And it feels like a full time endeavor. It's, you know, I'm putting, I feel like I'm just building the road a couple of feet ahead of me all the time. As I take a step, I'm just building what's just a step ahead of me. And I'm finally getting to the end of my first full-time semester. I'm feeling a little relief over that. And it's funny because I love the work, but at the end of the day, I actually feel good. I mean, it energizes me. I love my job. But at the end of the day, it's like depression has been creeping around the edges waiting for me to take a break. Like I, I take a break and then I'm just back to just feel like I'm not energized and don't want to do anything. And there's definitely times when I just wonder, where did my energy go? You know, where did that sunshine in my soul, where did that extra dose of, yay, you know, where did that go to? It doesn't make sense because I, I'm enjoying my life. I'm, i Love what I'm, even though I'm exhausted and tired, I'm enjoying what I'm doing. And I did listen to an interview the other day. They were talking about the difference between fatigue and depression. And there's subtle differences. They can look like the same thing. They can be misdiagnosed. And the, the main difference is, you know, when you have depression, you feel kind of like a hopelessness or an emptiness or sadness and you don't like to do the things you used to like to do as opposed to chronic fatigue if you have fatigue you might feel muscle pains and aches and you know feel physically it's a physical issue as opposed to like an emotional issue if you're feeling down it might be physical and it might be brain chemistry in my case it's pretty clear that it's depression. <laughs> I'm not I'm not fatigued because I'm overworked. I'm not fatigued because I'm having a physical issue. I don't want to engage with the world, and I don't feel energized. I do at my job. So yesterday, for the first time since I started working in September, I had a one day totally off to myself. I didn't have any work to do for school. I've been working every day, you know, between 5 and 10 and 12 hours a day putting together curriculum and teaching my classes and trying to do a great job and maybe overdoing it. I wonder if other people (laughs) do a better job and have an easier time with it. The feeling that I have when I get done is just this kind of bleh. And I I haven't had a day off. I've been feeling like I just need a day off. Well, it's the end of the semester. My students are all working really hard on their finals, but I didn't have anything I had to do yesterday. So I got up and had I actually stayed in bed and listened to the rain, tip, 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 tip on my ceiling and I stayed in the covers and pulled them up to my ears there's something so nice about this cold dreary weather for just snuggling in and not moving and then I was ready to get up and got up and had a cup of coffee and did a little dishes. I hadn't felt like doing dishes for a while. I did some dishes. I had people coming over. So it was a good good thing. I thought about cleaning up and didn't get very far with it. And then people came over for the practice session. And I realized like in addition to working too many hours, I'm also working on this project, which is some extra time. But I love it too. I'm really enjoying it. It energizes me. So I feel like working with people I like energizes me. And then Doing this project on depression also makes my depression just disappear for a little while. It's still waiting there in the background. You know, it's, it's just sort of hold, But it's, it does kind of alleviate it a little. I still have this kind of question in my mind with all this richness in my life. I can't help wondering, how can so many good things, there'd be so many good things in my life, and I still feel depressed. Honestly, I'm tired of feeling tired. You know, sometimes when you're depressed, you fill your life up with busyness, so you don't have to feel that feeling. And I think that at this point in my life, I I don't want to just work. I want to have days off and play. And even though the rest of the day, I, I just went out for dinner with a friend and then came home and got in bed at like seven at night and read a book. I don't think that, that didn't feel unhealthy. I, did, I was supposed to go to a Hanukkah party at a friend's, and instead I snuggled under the covers and read a good book and had some hot cocoa. So this is the, this is the time of year when that's a good thing to do. And um, I hope that in that process of like just letting go a little bit, enjoying a warm, cozy evening in bed, it felt like a real day off. So thank you all for joining us today. We've got with us Urban. He is a local entrepreneur and caregiver, and he's here to share his story. Hi, Urban.
2: Hi, Laura. Today, I want to first start out by giving a shout out to Michelle Boss. If I hadn't seen Michelle's post about the depression sessions, I wouldn't be here today. So thanks a lot, Michelle. I'm really looking forward to sharing my story because I know it's empowering because people have told me. And I'm going to take my story back into the late 50s. I'm a child of the 50s and 60s, graduated high school in the 70s, and I grew up in a little northwest Pennsylvania town, very picturesque at the confluence of two major rivers, the Allegheny and French Creek, which we actually called Crick. It's a little Western pennsylvania is thrown in there. And my story starts at age five. When I was five, the earliest remembrance that I can have is sitting out front of my house. And I somehow or another had the understanding that I was in the presence of God. And I thought, well, this is pretty interesting. I mean, what does a five-year-old, what kind of concept can you have? But I just had this awareness that something was happening. And I was like trying to figure this out. And the message that I got, Laura, was that I was special and that I was going to accomplish great things. Well, when you're five years old in you know, 1959, that really doesn't mean much to you. So I mentally put that up on the shelf and I hadn't realized until we started uh, talking about me doing this program that that's how I learned to cope with things that I didn't understand as all throughout life is sometimes I'm very intuitive and I would get these messages that things were going to occur further down in my life and I just needed to wait to have them happen. I don't really understand this, but it has occurred many, many times in my life. So I mentally put that on the shelf. And unfortunately, this is where my story takes a dramatic turn. I'm the youngest of 11. We had a two-bedroom house, eight boys in one bedroom, three girls in the other, and mom and dad in the fold-out couch. Now, because I was the baby and my mother was not going to have any more children... I was put up on a pedestal and was given privileges that none of my other siblings had. So I'm in a bedroom and there's at least five other boys in one bed. And I had my own bed. Well, one of my brothers thought that he would join me. And unfortunately, somewhere down the line, I wake up to discover that my male sibling is playing with my genitals. And I freak out. And I, I turned over and uh, what do you do when you're five or six years old and something like this happens? And it wasn't an open family. It wasn't like I could go tell my mom and dad that this had happened to me. I didn't understand what was going on. And so I just pushed that down deep inside and to make matters worse, we had to share the bathroom. And I'm trying to cover up and I don't want to be naked in front of my other male siblings. And they notice this and they start to taunt me and they have no idea the destruction that they're doing to me. And I don't have an outlet to tell anyone this story. So life just goes on as it it does when you have traumatic events. And now I'm going to fast forward to when I was 19. At age 19, I could not. I didn't have much of a relationship with my parents. They were very hands-off. They let me do whatever I wanted to do. And that wasn't a good recipe. It it never is. And so I decided I would commit suicide. A friend had committed suicide or attempted to commit suicide. And it seemed to bring her closer to her family. So I thought, well, I'll give it a heck, heck of a try here. And I really did. I consumed 70 hits of PCP. And then I went over to a friend's house and I told him what I had done and he didn't really believe me. And I said, would you send me red roses for my funeral? And he said, no, I'll send you lilies of the valley. And at that point, I jump up to argue with him and all the drugs kick in and I pass out on the floor. And next thing I know, I'm floating above my body somewhere, I'm assuming up by the ceiling. And I remember looking down at my body and saying, well, I'm here, but I'm there, so I guess this means I'm dead. And if that's true, well, so far so good. I would eventually tumble through the tunnel that people speak of when they have an uh, out-of-body experience or a near-death experience. And when I came out the other end, I was in a room or in a, the presence of light. Light and love is all that I experienced. Why I would ever come back to Earth is beyond me when you have experienced such love. But three days later, I awake in an ICU unit, and oddly enough, my lo- molester was there at my side to just, you know, fill in for the family. And I thought, well, this is pretty weird. But that's the way it was. I tried to kill myself, I did enough drugs to kill a whole bunch of people, and. I'm here today to tell my story. So usually when someone has a out-of-body experience like that, it often is a life-changing experience. But for me, it wasn't. I couldn't figure out what I was supposed to do since I came back. Usually you have some kind of purpose to fulfill. I couldn't figure it out. And for the next 30 years, I was an active alcoholic. And then again, uh, I'd gone through... Two divorces at this point. Uh, I do Now I really don't want to live. And I attempted to commit, in 1999 and 2000, suicide again. One with carbon monoxide poisoning. The other was uh, I grew a plant called foxglove, which they derived the medication digitalis, which slows down the heart. So I, I put a lot of effort into this, but I consumed the... Uh, digitalis, and all I did is have a very nice uh, time sleeping that night, and apparently I had no long-term anything happen to my heart, which is pretty amazing. So, I've done some really stupid things to my body, and I've been very blessed to be here today to be able to talk about it. Now, I'm figuring that, you know, I'm not supposed to die. This is my third time, and so I figured, okay, I got to do something. So, I put myself in the metal facility out at Keno Hospital. And my fear was, I had lived a little bit on the street, and my fear was living on the streets. I did not do well in that environment. And they wanted to kick me out after uh, about a week. And I said, no, if you kick me out, I said, I'll be right back in here because my biggest fear is being on the streets and not being able to cope. So I eventually got housing through Cope. Behavioral Services for about two years. And I ended up about a block and a half south of the Bashful Bandit Bar. And that became my go-to bar because I could walk to it. Well, lo and behold, they hired a new bartender one day and that woman would become my wife, Geraldine. And when I walked in that bar that day, she did eye lock on me and I knew that this woman wanted me in her life. But I She's a very attractive woman, but I wasn't interested. That's kind of like bad juju dating your at the bartender at your favorite bar. I've done that once before, and I swore I'd never do that again. Well, she actually only stayed there long enough, basically, to hook me into her life. And and I'm very glad that that, uh, that happened. So eventually, about the end of 2003 rules around and apparently I have some, December is a real interesting month for me. Uh, I became very sick and I nearly died. I got a staph infection and it settled in my spine and I was reduced to about a hundred pounds and crawling because I couldn't stand the pain anymore. Finally, I begged for an MRI. I get the MRI and it goes, you know, we want you to go to the hospital, you're dying. I said, well, I've been trying to tell you that for three months. And then they put me on massive amounts of oxycodone and the medication, the antibiotics that they needed to give me had to go through uh, into my heart because it was too strong. It would have destroyed the veins. So I was on an IV pump for about six months. And, you know, eventually I become well and I find that I'm hooked on this terrible medicine. And so I eventually wean myself off. And when I'm finally off to medicine and well, about a year and a half has passed, and I see no reason why I should go back to drinking. Alcohol no longer had any power over me. I would continue to buy Geraldine's alcohol for her. Geraldine is um, wife number three, and the love of my wife, and the reason that I'm here. And I would go to business mixers at clubs. I just know it no longer had power over me. I had gone to AA in-house treatments many, many times over the years. Uh, I'm ashamed the amount of DUIs that I had gotten. I was a hardcore, non-functioning alcoholic. And then I decided to quit. Instead of being an alcoholic, I became a workaholic, which wasn't a bad way to go wasn't necessarily healthy, but at least I was active and I was no longer drinking. And I had a business and we closed that business. It was a organic plant nursery. And eventually, Geraldine and I move into a beautiful house and we're having a beautiful relationship and she's continued to drink and I'm not, and I'm okay with that. While lo and behold, about uh, 2008, she discovers in the spring that she has cirrhosis of the liver. No surprise there. By the end of the year, she's nearly dead. She goes into the hospital. She's in the hospital Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's, and a couple more times in 2009. Wow. That, when somebody you love is dying, that makes a big difference. And our relationship continued on and she eventually recovered and got a full use of her liver back. But in 2012, she was diagnosed with lymphoma. And we come back from the hospital and I go into my room to try to figure out what's going on. And at at that point, I just kind of prayed and said universe what do I need to do to take this to the next level to have the strength because I understood in my heart she was never going to come through this that this was going to be the end for her and then I realized that I didn't love myself and if I love myself that was going to be the key so I just said okay I love myself pretty simple right well the change that happened in me was immediate the room filled up with light uh, I I was transformed in that moment to a completely different, loving, kind, caring, and compassionate person. A person that I was always supposed to be that my male sibling robbed from me 53 years ago. I walk into Geraldine's bedroom and I looked at her and she looks up at me, drops her uh, knitting needles and says, what's going on? And I said, well, I said, I learned to love myself. She said, Okay. She's pretty happy with that. That is what I needed to be her caregiver and to eventually uh, be able to handle uh, her death. Death can be very, very traumatic. In my case, we had no friends. She was my only friend. So I knew that I was going to be losing the only friend in my life. And I had no support group. I was screwed. So I came up with a business plan on how to survive after Jerry died. And what she eventually did do in uh, December 27th, 2012, about three years ago. And I knew that I wouldn't be able to clearly think, so I came up with a plan. And the plan was, you know, I have to do all these things that you do when somebody dies. And then once I was done with that, I wanted to move and I moved. I was going to implement a plan to take care of myself. And that was basically to get the heck out and get around people. And I chose my number one thing to do once that I was taking care of Urban, I was going to join a drum circle because I'd seen these people and I knew that they were a similar spirit. And that decision to join that drum circle led me to various groups like the Institute of Shamanic Arts, BioTouch. Harmony Hut, the folks out at Terrasante. One Heartbeat, Moonlight Drum Circle, Sacred Space. I just went out and said, folks, I'm hurting. Will you love me? I now have way more friends than I know what to do with, and I'm very happy for that. But I had a plan because I knew that I was going to be in the darkest place that I'd ever been in my life, Laura. And if I didn't have something to focus because I had no support group, I would probably not last more than a few months. And I'm very grateful for all the people that have uh, come into my life. It's an absolutely interesting journey. And earlier we mentioned moving from grief to joy. Well, in year two, I dedicated 2014 to moving from grief to joy. And... My life changed so dramatically, got so, so, so much more full, so much more better, got active in the community. But the thing that I'm trying to stress here is, yes, I've got knocked down. Yes, I was molested. Yes, I tried to kill myself. But when I knew that things were going to be their most darkest, I was smart enough to come up with a written game plan, and I sticked to that game plan, and now... I'm out in the community every weekend is full because I know if I stay home, I can get depressed. I don't want to be depressed. I believe that I have a powerful message of hope that we can overcome any obstacle. And that's basically my message today, Laura. And you mentioned something earlier today about hopelessness. I want to tell you, if you have a game plan, if when you're in your lucid moments, make a plan so that when depression starts to come into you, that you will know what to do. Now recently, I had to deal with depression because I was going to come talk about depression and that little monster wanted to come up and destroy the love that I wanted to share and that I'm sharing here today. And when I felt that darkness coming on, I just kept on repeating, I am happy. I am happy. I kept repeating that until I became happy. And for me, depression is a choice. I can choose to be depressed, or I can choose to be happy, or I can choose to be busy. And for me, I choose to be busy. I choose to love My new mantra in my life that I'm trying to focus everything around is a couple simple thoughts. I am love, I am loved, and I live to serve. And that's my message today, Laura.
1: Thank you so much for sharing that message. I'm really struck by, you know, your relationship with your wife and the closeness that you had with her. And you know, I, I one of the things when you were first telling your story in the practice round, I was really, you know, kind of amazed at um, how she was the the main person in your life that you just knew that and felt that she connection. was
2: the only person, not just the main. She was the <laughs> only person.
1: Yeah, and to go from that and find some way of having a, a plan to to get out of it, and you know get connected to other people i think that's sort of amazing
2: well you know laura we all know have different triggers for depression and if, if you sit back and you look at these things you know what causes you to be depressed for most people and you can actually make a written plan that when this happens this is what i'm going to do because We all know what works. We all know that we need to get out of our head. We all know that we need to be out in public. We know that we need to be doing, but we choose to be depressed. In my case, I'm opting to choose to be happy because the happier I am, the more powerful my message and the more people that I can positively impact, and I truly am here to serve.
1: You were mentioning earlier, like, since you were telling people that you were going to be on the show and talk about depression, that you had a lot of conversations about depression. And I I wondered if, you know, not anybody's confidentiality, but if you wanted to share, like, what that experience was.
2: That was the beginning of the power movement for me in this. I hadn't really thought it through, and I just mentioned it on Facebook, what I was doing. And I was really surprised... That people that I may only know through Facebook that I don't know personally and I hardly see them at all on my timeline were stepping forward. And I was giving them a vehicle that they could talk about the frustration in their own life and that immensely blessed me.
1: And that's one of my feelings is like, if you can talk about it, if you can open up, it's shocking how many people follow that. How many people are like, oh, wow, yeah, I relate to that.
2: (laughs) Yeah, a good friend of mine, and and I forgot to quote, my good friend Karen Smith made a really astute observation about it's so wonderful to not to be outside of depression, to be able to look at and say I'm not there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And um, for me, I think the times in the past when I was depressed, I didn't even know that's what it was. You know, I didn't even recognize that that's what I was feeling because it didn't feel sad for me. It didn't look like what I thought depression was.
2: Uh, And a lot of people can struggle with that more. I I, I understand. Now, I kind of speak in absolutes because that's how it works for me. It's very clear. and It's very defined. But for people that are listening today and like yourself, that's not always the case.
1: Yeah, for me, it's all filled with mud. <laughs> it's like a lot of muddy water, where there's there's a big spectrum from like really feeling depressed and sobbing and crying and feeling heartbroken or hurt or sad or broken in some way, to like just to kind of mild low grade, bleh, all the way up to like really joyful. And I, I've had, when I'm when I'm in a joyful phase, I think about it. I mean, I have had years of feeling on top of the world every day. And I think that, you know, for me, there's like this spectrum and I'm trying to be okay with all of it because they do sneak up on you and to just kind of accept like, okay, you know, that's, that's the feeling I'm having now. I'm not going to judge that feeling and I'm going to do the things I need to feel better, but not be, you know, not be judging the part of me that feels down.
2: You know, that's really important. We all know, I believe what works for us and what works for Laura is different than what works for me. But I believe that once you understand what works for you, make that part of who you are. Write that down and say, you know, I I have a plan. If this comes up in my life, this is how I'm going to address this. And for me, it's about not letting depression win.
1: Wow. Well, this is a perfect note to end on. And I want to thank you so much for coming to the studio. I really appreciate your time and your energy that you put into this. Thanks. Have a good day, folks.
0: Again, I want to mention that if you found some of the content of today's show triggering, please seek professional help. And worst case scenario, call 911 if you're feeling like you might hurt yourself or others. I'm not a licensed therapist, and this show and the station are not endorsing any remedies or products. The purpose of this show is to destigmatize depression through storytelling. You can find a link to mental health services on downtownradio.org on the About KTDT page. You've been listening to the Depression Session on Downtown Radio with music by Septa Helix. Find us on Facebook at the Depression Session Podcast. Thank you.